very excited about today's episode, mainly because of the guest. Don't go anywhere. Stay with me. Few quick housekeeping issues. We got to get out of the way, and then we'll dive into the subject matter of today's episode. Uh, I mention it all the time, but one of the most important aspects of our show is connecting with you, the listening audience. If you have any questions, if you want to challenge something that was said on the show, if you want to submit topics that you would like me to address, literally nothing is off limits. There's several ways that you can reach out to us. First, if you'd like to have your question, comment, whatnot played live on the air, you can call me at 678-883-3316. You can leave a voicemail. Once again, that's 678-883-3316. If your question is pithy, we may even play it on the air. You can also reach out to us via email. Our email address is info at outlawradio.org. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the radio outlaw. And if you're into Twitter, I love Twitter. It's a double-edged sword, but our Twitter handle is at radio underscore outlaw, radio underscore outlaw. I am convinced that broken people who are willing to discuss their failures requires honestly more bravery and is therefore, I think, for our purposes, more insightful than so-called noblemen willing to bloviate about their victories. Furthermore, I really do believe that the blessed doctrine of grace, which we talk about a lot on this show, is best understood when it's illustrated. To know grace, I really believe you have to experience grace when you don't deserve it, and then be forced to extend grace when you don't want to. And so with that lead in, I'd like to welcome to the Outlaw Radio Show, and I might butcher his name, I'm going to preempt that, but his name is Tullian uh, Chavijan. Did I get it close? Am I close? You got it, Zach. I'm really Chavijan. impressed. Yes, you said it very, very well, and I'm well, very impressed, so congratulations. It took a lot of practice on my part um, <laughs> to get your name correct. Now, most of my audience, uh, we run in different circles, you and I, within, within greater Christianity. So most of my listening audience uh, either knows very, very little about you, if anything at all, or... All they know is maybe what they've read in the news because you, for quite a while, were pretty high profile. So kind of with that lead in, could you just take a few minutes here and just tell the audience uh, about you, about your life, about ministry, about growing up? Take us all the way to the Liberate Conference in 2015. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, let's see. I'll do this as quickly as I possibly can. I am... Uh... I was born into a Christian family. Um, my mom is the oldest daughter of Billy Graham, like the evangelist Billy Graham, and my grandmother Ruth. Uh, so I was born into Christian royalty, really. I'm the middle of seven children. Um, I have four brothers and two sisters. Uh, the home that I grew up in was uh, joyously Christian. It was not oppressive, it was not legalistic, the flavor of Christianity that was expressed in my home growing up was fun and life-giving and uh, hospitable, and my parents did a really good job of teaching us to take God very seriously, but to not take ourselves too seriously, so there was lots of laughter in our home growing up, and my dad was born and raised in Switzerland, Uh, his father was Armenian, and his mother was Swiss. So we had kind of that international flavor falling through our house also. My mom was born and raised in the mountains of North Carolina, just outside Asheville. 
Um, and my dad was born and raised in Western Europe. So uh, it was a multicultural home in that regard, uh, various languages being uh, spoken in my home growing up, predominantly French and English, a little German, a little Italian. Uh, so I, you know, had a really, really great and exciting upbringing, really. And because of the family that I was born into, I was able to sit on the front row of some really exciting things going or growing up and uh, got to meet a lot of exciting people and uh, didn't know any different. This was all that I knew. Uh, my grandparents, uh, even though they were really well-known, were extremely down-to-earth and very close with us and very uh, approachable, and we knew them well, and they knew us well. Family was primarily important to them, uh, and so we were all deeply connected in that way. Uh, I don't know exactly when it happened, uh, but I started to find a little bit of difficulty trying to figure out where I fit inside the home. Um, you know, the middle of seven kids, I wasn't sure if I was the youngest of the older three or the oldest of the younger three. Sometimes I felt like a youngest child. Sometimes I felt like an oldest child. Sometimes I felt like the middle child that I was. Um, and so I started to explore sources of meaning and identity outside of the home uh, when I was 13, 14, 15 years old. And when you're that young and you are desperate to belong anywhere, you make some pretty foolish decisions about who you hang out with and the things that you decide to do and that sort of thing. Um, and so at the ripe young age of 16, I dropped out of high school. I got kicked out of my house. Um, <clears throat> my parents said, we love you, but we have an entire family to care for. And if you're going to continue living this way, you can't live this way under our roof. And I was thrilled about this. I grew up, I was born in Jacksonville, Florida, but grew up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, and so here I was, this 16-year-old kid in Fort Lauderdale, South Florida, uh, with no uh, teachers breathing down my neck and no parents looking over my shoulder. And I was finally Living free the to, life. <laughs> yes, finally free to do whatever I wanted to do, whenever I wanted to do it. Um, and the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season, and it was, but... It also says that when that season comes to an end, you're left with a gaping hole in your soul that only God is big enough to fill. And that season came to an end for me when I was about 21 years old. It wasn't one particular event or one particular crisis. It was just this culminating sense of there has to be more to life than what I'm experiencing. There has to be more to who I am than what this world keeps telling me. And like the prodigal son, uh, I knew where home was because my parents had laid such a solid foundation, not just home physically, but home spiritually, home emotionally, and all those things. Um, and so God brought me to my senses, and I made my way back home, and the reception was celebratory. I mean, my parents and their, and their friends and extended family had been praying for years that the hound of heaven would track me down and magnificently defeat me, which he did. Uh, and everything that I that I used to run away from, I started running toward, and everything that I used to run toward, I started running away from, and I had really been raised at that point from death to life, and um, and everything started to change. Uh, I was dating a girl at the time who uh, pretty quickly after that also became a Christian, and we got engaged, and six months later or seven months later got married. Uh, I was 21 the day I got married, turned 22 on our honeymoon, uh, so we were both young, and I didn't know what God wanted me to do with the rest of my life, but I did know that I wanted to spend 
so much time and energy whenever and wherever I could telling the whole world about this amazingly gracious God who tracks down bad people like me. And so he also gave me, God also gave me this overwhelming hunger and thirst to learn and study and all of that stuff. And so I didn't know, I wanted to go to college, but I didn't know how that was going to happen because all I had was a GED. I had sat out of high school and got my GED, had never taken the SAT. Um, and to make a long story short, uh, I ended up getting accepted into a Christian university in South Carolina. They accepted me on probation, which basically meant if you can handle the workload here uh, over the course of your first semester, we'll let you stay. For the sake of time, yeah. fast forward us. You went into ministry, pastoral ministry, pastoring churches. Get us to Coral Ridge. I finished college with a degree in philosophy. I then went on to seminary and finished and then went to serve a church in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee for two years, moved back home to South Florida in 2003 to plant a church, and that church uh, was growing. God was doing great things in the church, great things through the church, uh, and when that church was about five years old... Um, I was approached by Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, which was a well-known church uh, that was about 25 minutes down the road from where we were, and their founding pastor, James Kennedy, who made a name for himself in the 70s and 80s, uh, TV, radio, all of that. The evangelism explosion was an evangelistic tool that he developed in the 70s that became widely used and widely known around the world. Um, they had died in 2007, and so Coral Ridge was in the unique position of having to find a pastor for the very first time. And so they approached me and asked if I would consider becoming the next pastor, and I said, I'm honored, I'm humbled, but I'm not interested. They came back to me a second time and said, would you please reconsider? And I said, I'm honored, I'm humbled, but I'm not interested. The third time they came is when we discussed the possibility of a merger. And I don't remember if they brought it up or if I brought it up, but... If I brought it up, I would have said something like this. Listen, the only way I would ever consider doing this is if you take my whole church with me. And I knew Coral Rich had been in decline for quite some time, and I knew that the church needed to uh, sort of you know, be replanted. Uh, and I knew I couldn't do that right. by myself. So after a three-month due diligence process, uh, we concluded that this is, in fact, what God wanted us to do. And so in early 2009... Those two churches became one new church, and it was a remarkable celebration for about 10 days. And then all of the fireworks that we anticipated started to go off. Coleridge and New City, the church I planted, were very, very, very different churches. Coleridge is more formal. Our church is much more casual. Uh, Coleridge was much older. Our church is much younger. Um, and so there were just a lot of cultural differences and demographical differences between our two churches. And so that made merging the two churches very, very, very difficult. Um, but we were able to sort of, God was able to get us through all of that um, in the first year. And after that first year, it really did become one new church. I think the best thing that happened to me during that very painful year is that I rediscovered the power of the gospel for me in the crucible of ache and during that season of uh, real trial and struggle and suffering. And, um, and I credit that uh, sort of glorious ruin of my life during that time 
as a way of opening up my eyes to the radicality of grace and the unconditionality of God's love and the infinite resources that are already ours because of what Christ has done for us. Well, once that realization hit, everything about ministry for me changed. My books changed, my sermons changed, my approach to ministry and leadership changed, and I was at that point on a mission, really on a mission, with a singular goal, and that was to, in some sense, evangelize the church by declaring the radicality of God's one-way love. This idea that Jesus plus nothing really does equals everything. And what does that mean? Not just theologically. What does that mean functionally? What does that mean in our places of hurt? What does that mean in our places of loneliness? What does that mean when it comes to our performance and how we live on this performance treadmill trying to secure our own value and worth and approval and significance, all that stuff. So, um, so that gospel rediscovery kind of made me a theological psychologist in a way that I hadn't been before. Um, I became a real student of the human condition and what it is that goes on deep down inside of us and how the gospel answers those probing existential questions. And, um, and so I really sort of became um, a one-message man. And uh, I, had, I was writing a book a year. Uh, I launched a ministry called Liberate. I had been traveling quite a bit around the country. Um, I was being aired on TV every week around the world and on the radio every day. And, um, and everywhere I went, no matter where I was, I could have been at a Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference, a Southern Baptist Pastors Conference, a college campus, a Pentecostal church. It didn't matter where I was. When I was finished preaching, people would always come up to me and ask me two questions. Number one, is what you just said true? And number two, if it is, why have I been in church my whole life and have never heard this before? And so after hearing this 10,000 times, I looked at a buddy of mine who would travel with me, and I said, I really want to do something about this. I mean, the church seems to be devoid of the gospel in its deepest uh, expressions. And so we created this platform called Liberate, which – uh, initially was just a conference, but then it became much more than a conference. It became TV, radio, a well-resourced website, a pastor's network, a church network, a national conference, uh, all of that stuff. It became all of that stuff. And so not only was uh, Coral Ridge exploding in a wonderful way, uh, but Liberate was exploding in a wonderful way. And uh, my personal ministry was exploding in a wonderful way. And at that point in my life, it really did feel like I was living the dream. And that was when I was first exposed to your ministry. I actually went to the Liberate Conference in February of 2015. And what happened next, I think, took everyone by surprise. Um, and, um, and I just kind of want to... Can you explain what then happened? So you're at the pinnacle of ministry. Coral Ridge is rocking. You, you founded this this new network. You're traveling. You've got book deals. All of this is 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 going your way, um, but it all kind of came to a screeching halt really quickly in the spring. I think it started about in the spring of 2015. Yep, it started in the spring of 2015. There were a, a handful of things that were going on. Um, in just going on in my own uh, personal life and family life, um, and uh, to make a very long and complex story short, uh, in the spring and early summer of 2015, everything came to somewhat of an abrupt halt. 
Um, I, two things that I had thought were secure forever uh, were my 21-year marriage and uh, my my job as the pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, and I lost both of those things uh, in the spring and early summer of 2015 due to my own sin and my own selfishness. I was uh, unfaithful to my wife and therefore deserved to lose both my marriage and the ministry God had given me, and everything came crashing down overnight. With those two losses came a thousand other losses, the loss of close friendships, the loss of peace and security on my kids' faces, the loss of purpose and public credibility and confidence in God's goodness and financial stability and you name it, the loss of hope and joy and opportunity. Basically, life as I knew it came to a screeching halt. And it literally went from feeling like a fairy tale to feeling like a violent tragedy overnight. Um, and, speaking, uh, speaking of overnight, do you remember the moment where it hit you? Oh my goodness, this is this is this just got real. Do you remember the moment? Well, there were yeah, it, uh, there were many, many, many of those moments. But I think the you know the moment that you get caught is always the one where you seemingly sink the deepest because it finally hits you that um, this is really. Like, I'm done. I'm done with everything. How, I'm done. How did you get caught? Um, well, there, there were a handful of things that were going on uh, with both my wife and I at the time. And we were separated at that point. And, um, and I had started a relationship with a woman who had been relatively close to uh, our family. And um, we had been, you know, communicating via, she lived in the area, and so we would see each other, and uh, we would communicate via uh, text and phone conversations and all of that stuff, and I uh, had taken a leave of absence from the church in the spring of 2015 to try and address some of the stuff that was going on inside my marriage and inside my family, and it was during that time that I met this. I, I had met her before, uh, but we really developed a relationship with one another. And uh, the church, during my leave of absence, was trying to kind of figure out what was going on. And uh, they ended up uncovering, from what I understand, I never saw this, but from what I understand, they ended up uncovering uh, a, a whole host of uh, communication, text messages, phone records, blah, blah, blah. And uh, it was indicative of the fact that there was a relationship. Uh, there wasn't anything terribly scandalous about the text messages or that sort of thing, but it was indicative that there is a relationship here that is going on. And so they confronted me, and, and I admitted it. Um, and uh, three days later, after that initial confrontation and my admission, uh, they stood up and read uh, a, a statement saying that I had failed morally and uh, was resigning uh, as the pastor of Coral Ridge. And then from that point forward, it went viral. And when I say viral, I mean yeah. National Enquirer, People Magazine, USA Today, uh, News, because I 
had come from a famous family and it was a famous church and I had sort of uh, risen through, up to the top myself. It was just the whole thing had drama written all over it. And that's newsworthy stuff, you know. Uh, drama is very <laughs> newsworthy. Uh, well, let me let me f- forward this conversation just a little in, in a blog post. And I would encourage everyone to visit your website, Tullian.net. Um, you, you write articles and are very radically transparent about your experiences the last several years. But but you wrote an interesting statement about this particular season of your life. And I'm quoting, uh, I blamed everyone else for all the losses I was experiencing. Uh, and that really struck me. Um, and so first, can you give some examples of this and, and then maybe explain um, why blame uh, was your reaction? Yeah, gosh, man. Um, I don't know. I, I, you know, I've learned a lot about myself over the last three and a half years and why we tend to respond to crises the way that we do and specifically why we respond to crises that we create the way that we do. And, um, you know, I was so desperate to, in some sense, recover what I was losing. I mean, I was in a complete freefall. Uh, friends were gone, job was gone, reputation was gone, family was gone, uh, everything was gone, and I was in full-on self-salvation mode. I was doing everything I could in those early months to try and salvage and recover everything that I had been losing. And for me to do that, I had to lie. I didn't have to, but I chose to lie. I chose to manipulate the narrative. I tried to get people to feel sorry for me. I tried to blame other people. I tried to play the victim. Um, you know, I wasn't being truthful with the people who were closest to me. I was instinctively uh, doing everything I could to try and save myself from the wreckage that I had caused. Hmm. And part of that process, for me, involved blaming other people. It's not that I wasn't taking any blame, but I only took blame to the degree that it would engender sympathy from other people. Uh, I was nowhere near as free as I am now to talk about this stuff and to own it, and I just wasn't. I mean, I was in a very bad, bad place emotionally, mentally, spiritually, all of those things. Um, and literally, I, has, I was facing a crisis that I had never faced before, at least not in my adult years, but I was facing a bona fide identity crisis. I really was. Um, I mean, I tell people this all the time, but my losses did not simply usher in grief and pain and shame and regret. They ushered in a severe identity crisis because um, I didn't realize it until later on. I mean, you know, a couple of years later as I was going through counseling and uh, just allowing God to kind of deconstruct me, um, that my worth, my value, my deepest sense of who I was and, and what made me matter, I mean, my identity was anchored in things like my status, my reputation, my family, my position, who my friends were, my ability to lead, the positions that I had, uh, you know, the opportunities I had, blah, 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 blah. And so without these things that I had come to depend on to make me feel valuable and important, I no longer knew who I was. In other words, it wasn't just that I lost everything, but because my very identity was so deeply attached to those things, I lost myself. And I tell people all the time that I felt like a 15-year-old 
desperately looking under every rock and behind every tree to find himself, except that at the time I was 42. Do you believe that reaction that you had, especially in the months after the news broke, do you think your reaction compounded uh, the fallout? Oh, there's no question, man. Oh, there's no question. I mean, I, I, I think back to those early months, especially the first four to five months after everything exploded, after, you know, um, after I, I imploded and everything exploded. And I mean, there's almost nothing that I don't regret. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the things that I said, um, the, the, the fact that I was not willing to go away for a while and get the help that I needed, the fact, I mean, it was all indicative of the fact that I, so much of who I was was attached to these things I was losing, and I wasn't going to let go easily. And it was just God's way of, I think, stripping me of all of the things that I was holding on to more tightly than him. And I'm a scrapper by nature, and I wasn't going to go down without a fight, and I didn't know who I was apart from these things. And um, and honestly, the more I talk to people and the more I've interacted with people over the last three and a half years who have experienced similar things to me in different, but in some different ways, but who at some point in time have felt like either because of their own fault or the fault of someone else, they've lost everything. Um, it's 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 relatively, but sadly, common uh, for us to attach our identity to things that are infinitely smaller than Jesus, and when we do that. Uh, and those things are gone, we end up not knowing who we are. And, uh, and the, the sort of instinctive response that we have to things like this is just dark and selfish and evil. And um, so I was out for me. I was trying to recover me. I was trying to salvage myself and trying to salvage what I was losing. So much of my life revolved around me. And um, and so that that put me in a position where defending myself, blaming other people, lying to others, uh, not telling the truth, manipulating the narrative, all of that was uh, very plausible for me because I was on a mission to get everything back. With with the we have less than a minute here um, for this first block. But what would you say to someone right now that might be listening whose sin has just hit the light? What advice would you give? Man, um, A, I would say that there is nothing you can do or nothing that you fail to do that will cause God or tempt God to leave you or forsake you. God's love for you is not dependent on what you do or don't do. God's love for you is dependent on what Christ has done for you. That does not, however, mean that you will not experience the painful horizontal consequences that come from bad choices. But it was my friend Paul Zoll who said something to me that I will never forget when I was at my worst moment. And I would say the same thing to everybody. He said, the purpose behind the suffering you are going through is to kick you into a new freedom from false definitions of who you are. And so I really do believe that God is on a mission to set us free, even if that means setting us free from ourselves and setting us free from those things that we think identify us that are smaller than Jesus. Well, we're going to pick up right where we left off. Don't go anywhere. We've got more here on the Outlaw Radio Show. This is Josh, and you're listening to the Outlaw Radio Show with special guest Tullian Tervigian with Pastor Zach Adams. And again, please stay with us for more of the second half of the Outlaw Radio Show.
You know, the kind of transparency that we're hearing today in the Outlaw Radio Show is very rare. Now, here's Zach with more on the Outlaw Radio Show. Uh, Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. I'm joined uh, by a new friend. His name is Tullian. And I want to build upon what we were talking about in the previous block. Um, Your website, Tullian.net, some great articles. But in another posting, you admitted that, quote, this explosion had been building for a few years. Uh, Could you elaborate? And obviously that's the hindsight of 2020, but could you elaborate on what you mean by that and explain maybe how you got to that point where (laughs) your life fell apart? Yeah, I, man, um, (laughs) it's hard to know exactly, um, you know, where it all started and what was going on. You know, to the best of my recollection, it probably started much earlier than I realize, you know, we we all have what my friend Paul Zoll and his wife call an archaeology. We bring lots of stuff to the table, uh, upbringing, personality, um, you know, uh, people who have loved us, people who have criticized us, whatever the case may be, uh, pain, pleasure, we bring all of that. All of that is part of what shapes us. But I would say that for me, um, there had been this slow and subtle shift that came on like the slow creep of the tide rather than a sudden tidal wave that I did not realize until after the wave hit the beach. And it was this shift from locating my identity and what God had done to locating my identity and what I was doing. In other words, the shift went from finding my worth and security in the message of the gospel to finding my worth and security in my success as a messenger of the gospel, which is something that I think lots of pastors and preachers and church leaders um, can fall prey to. Uh, I have become uh, a real critic of the kind of celebrity culture that revolves around uh, Christian leaders, primarily because of the damage it does to Christian leaders. Um, at least for me, I can say that success, when it came to the things that mattered most, success was far more toxic than failure. Uh, in fact, it took failing to set me free from the toxicity that I had achieved as a result of my success. Okay, along and, the lines of this celebrity pastor m- mantra, um, how did that specifically play a role in your downfall, the, the role of ego, the role of pride? Um, yeah, you don't really see these things as they're happening, of course. Um, like I said, these are, you know, it's more like a slow and subtle shift that comes on like a tide rather than a tidal wave. Um, but in retrospect, I look back and I think, gosh, you know, when I think there are a couple things at play. Number one, you are on the receiving end of so much adulation. You have so much power. You have so much influence. You're in so much demand um, that it's very difficult to not believe the press about yourself. Uh, you've got so many people telling you that, you know, you're, God's using you to save my life. God's, and pastors and preachers are especially prone to this because they are the mouthpiece of God to people. And um, and oftentimes the sheep credit the shepherd, namely the pastor, rather than the God of that shepherd with the fact that they have been set free. And so if you're not careful, you can begin to believe that. I think that's one thing my grandfather was protected from 
uh, you know, partly by his friends, partly by the fact that God was just amazingly gracious and protective of him. But he never took credit for anything. Never. Uh, and I think we have a tendency to take credit for those things that seem to go well when we are at the helm. The other thing I would say is it's very, very, um, very, very hard to know who your real friends are when you're at the top because you have so much to offer. And in many cases, their livelihood is dependent on your success. So even if they see some things or some red flags go off for them, they're going to be less prone to point those things out to you because that might mean something for them. On the other hand, even if there are people who would say, hey, listen, red flag here or red flag there or whatever, hey, you might want to slow down over here or you're going too fast over there, um, when you reach a certain level, at least for me, it would have been hard to hear these people say this because you've got one or two or three voices telling you to slow down, but you've got an entire world telling you they want more. And so uh, pride, ego, um, a heightened sense of your importance. Uh, my friend Paul Ball says that most people suffer from an extreme form of self-importance. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Uh, preachers and pastors can often feel like saviors or they often, uh, you know, fancy themselves to be saviors. They can develop, and it's so ironic because we are in the business of brokering God's message to God's people. And at the same time, when as the broker, we can easily develop a God complex. Not that we would ever say, I am God, but that we would almost function as if we are in the lives of people and in the work that we're doing. And because the work that we're doing is spiritual work, we tend to, at least I did, tend to rationalize and justify the narcissism and the self-promotion and, you know, all of that stuff that comes along with being in a successful place and doing work that is succeeding. And so, um, you know, it's different for each person. I would just say this, though, Zach, um, that my level of self-awareness has skyrocketed, skyrocketed since I fell flat on my face and not only hurt myself and my family but a lot of other people. I have come face-to-face. I've been forced to come face-to-face with the fact that I am far worse off than I think I am. I'm not nearly as strong. I'm not nearly as sufficient. I'm not nearly as uh, capable as I thought I was. Uh, God has had to break my legs in order to teach me how to dance. He's He's had to gouge out my eyes so that I could see things I couldn't see before. And um, and I know that because of that, uh, that is why I have this real um, sort of fear about success. And when I see someone succeeding, especially in the Christian world, uh, it's it's scary. It's really really scary. And I think that is both the fault of the sinful pastor who uh, is by nature narcissistic. We all are. In fact, I say this to people all the time. There are two kinds of people in this world, narcissists who know they are and narcissists who think they aren't. But there's no such thing as a non-narcissist if they believe in original sin. So, um, But, you know, it feeds that narcissistic tendency in us, but it's also the fault of the people in the church who idolize the leaders. And so it's this vicious cycle um, that can be very toxic to everybody involved, and I have eyes for that in ways that I did not before. Well, let me let me let me interject. So you you mentioned earlier that the two big things you lost, the two big things your sin totally took, was your marriage, 
and your ministry, specifically Coral Ridge. Yeah. With everything that you're that you're and saying, liberate and book deals and, and right. speaking gigs and all that stuff. Yeah, but yeah. But the two things it was the church and and your marriage. Those things that you felt like you could you could really rely on. And just once again, hindsight, red flags, the things that you're you're bringing up. What would you have done differently in your marriage to safeguard from the explosion? What would you have done differently in your ministry? I would say when it came to my marriage. Um, I failed to realize that marriage is without question. I knew this intellectually, and I knew this biblically, but functionally, um, I failed to uh, functionally realize that your marriage is absolutely the most important relationship you have on earth, period. And that uh, if your marriage falls apart, everything falls apart. There's no such thing as being able to sustain success in the other areas of your life if your marriage is a cataclysmic failure. And um, and so I would say that, A, failing to realize that and take necessary precautions and make the necessary efforts. And there are all sorts of complex dynamics that go on inside each and every marriage relationship. So I don't want to be insensitive to men or women who struggle within the context of a difficult relationship and the challenges that that brings. But there were also some things that happened uh, in my in my own immediate family with my uh with one of my sons that took a real toll on both his mother and I and at that time had I been wiser and more sensitive and more loving I would have gone to my elders and asked for 3 to 6 months off so that I could uh help my wife and help my family deal with some of these things that were really sort of plaguing us and I didn't um, and there were a whole host of reasons why I didn't. Uh, there wasn't just one, but the fact of the matter is I didn't. And, um, and so I think there were some, there were some things that had happened in my own marriage, uh, that I don't think I addressed as carefully as I had. And for instance, I think the merger of the two churches took a toll on both my wife and I. That was a very difficult, difficult time. I think there were some other things that took a toll. Um, that just weren't addressed. And when those things aren't addressed, it's not that they go away, it's that they end up exploding. So um, as far as the ministry goes, um, I think it goes back to something I already said, which is uh, when you begin to uh, take ownership of something that belongs to God, he will take it away from you. We will be forgotten 50 years after we die, 20 years after we die, in some cases, 10 years after we die. Uh, I mean, from dust we came and to dust we shall return. And I think it is God and his way and God's mission and God's ministry that goes on forever. And because of the world that we live in, we can have a very bloated sense of our own role. Um, and I, I kind of wish that I had been more aware that that could happen, <laughs> Um, before it did happen, and that's one of the things that I find myself doing now in talking to young pastors is, in a sense, kind of helping them prepare for their moment of success, if and when that comes, um, and how to view yourself in those moments and how to and how to sort of safeguard yourself from the sorts of things that accompany success. So, um, you know, I mean, I could go on and on about those two things, but in short form, those would be the things that I would say. 
you mentioned earlier, once again, that you were before all of this, um, probably going back to the late two thousands, really a one message man, grace. Like it was this, this proclamation of grace. And one of the reasons I wanted you on the show is that, um, I, I want your perspective um, now that the last few years, you know, you went from the mountain to the valley. How has that experience um, seasoned, changed, developed your um, your views of this blessed doctrine? It's only deepened my belief and commitment to it. What happened with me was not the result of believing the message I was preaching too much. It was believing the message I was preaching too little. In other words, if I had actually believed in my darkest, if I had actually believed in my darkest, most desperate moment that everything I need in Christ I already possess, I would not have embarked on the self-salvation projects that led to my demise. So here I was preaching against self-salvation projects and finding myself very prone to the very things I was preaching against. So I think any charge that what happened with me is the result of the message I was preaching is about as foolish and silly as anything I can imagine, really. Uh, grace is never to blame for our sin. Grace is the only answer for our sin. And it is believing that God loves us so much that he gave us everything we need in Christ that alone can prevent us uh, in those hours of temptation to resist those uh, you know, to resist the fool's gold that is offered to us, and so uh, my, I think it's I've said this to a friend not long ago that uh, the doctrine of grace goes from the head to the heart when everything falls apart, and mm. it's your only lifeline, and it goes from being sort of uh, theological to doxological when everything falls apart. And um, and so my belief in it, my commitment to it, is stronger than it's ever been. I think it's probably even more radical than it was because I've seen the fruit of it in my own life and in the lives of other people that God has repaired as a result of my sin and my self-destruction. And so um, there is one bullet remaining in my gun. That same bullet that was in my gun beginning in 2009 is the same bullet that's there, and I just have a deeper, more passionate, uh, more committed, um, you know, approach to it and drive to deliver it wherever and whenever I can. I'm currently not a pastor, so I don't deliver it from behind the same pulpit every Sunday in the same church to the same people, but whenever and wherever I have the opportunity uh, to pull the trigger and shoot that bullet, I do. It's as much force as God gives me. What would you say, and, and this, is, this is kind of more of a personal angle, what would you say to someone who'd been attending Coral Ridge when all of this happened, believed in you, was hurt by you, stuck around to see how it affected the church moving forward? Uh, what would you say to that person? Well, thankfully, I've had the opportunity to to say to that person exactly what I have been able to say to that person, usually face-to-face or in a phone conversation. Making amends is part of the healing process for everybody involved. Um, But the first thing that I say to these people when I have the opportunity is, I am so, so sorry. I loved myself more than I loved you, and I sacrificed you for me rather than sacrifice me for you. And um, that's just that's just such an it's such an anti-gospel sentiment to do that. 
and yet I was widely known as the gospel guy, the crazy guy. <laughs> the irony, right? The irony is so thick, and yet the people who really listened to what I was saying and embraced it for themselves, their immediate response is usually tears, a hug, and I forgive you, we don't ever need to talk about this again. Um, and so I have been super grateful to God for those places and those people that have been able to be reconciled. Um, I mean, just some of the conversations I've had with people where I've had the opportunity to look them in the eye um, and apologize for what I did and what happened to their lives as a result of what I did uh, has been wonderful. Some of those relate, I mean, there are some people that, I could say that too, and it doesn't matter, you know. And I want to—I want to make sure the audience hears that—that that, um, you know, we are commissioned to live at peace with all people, as far as it depends on us. But whether or not reconciliation happens in this life is not entirely up to us, because it takes two people to reconcile. Um, what we can say is that whether someone, whether someone forgives us or not, we can confess our sins, and we can forgive them for not forgiving us we do have the grace from God to be able to do that. Uh, but sometimes reconciliation doesn't happen. It just doesn't. I mean, sometimes the wounds are too deep or the person has their own particular struggles or needs to be set free from other stuff, and they just they refuse. Um, and there's nothing you can do about that. Uh, and so, But in those moments, in those uh, opportunities that I've had to have those conversations where forgiveness is granted and re- relationships are reconciled, it is a taste of heaven on earth when it can happen and when it does happen, and I am deeply grateful to God for those times that it has. I want to close uh, with the two and a half minutes or so we have left with kind of a two-part question that I think summarizes this well. Uh, first, how has the grace of God specifically ministered in your life over the last few years? And with that, uh, what would you say to someone who's equally messed up his or her life? Well, the answer to the first question would be God's grace has come to me uh, through a couple of key people. Number one, my current wife, Stacy. We've been married for almost two years, and God dropped her into my life when I was at bottom. And I tell people and her regularly that she is living proof that God gives us his best when we are at our worst. Her unconditional love toward me and her willingness to walk through the valley of the shadow of death with me has taught me so much about the way God loves us with no strings attached that it has resuscitated me in some really powerful ways. Um, Paul Zoll, who I mentioned earlier, is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Uh, you know, as everyone was fleeing the scene of the accident, Paul was moving in. As I got worse, Paul got closer. Um, he really understands the gospel at a profound level, and he applied one-way love. And, and interestingly, he wrote a book called Grace and Practice, and uh, he, he lived it in my life. He should have failed on me. Same with Stacy. Both of them should have failed on me a thousand times, uh, and they didn't. Uh, and I failed on them a thousand times, and they didn't reciprocate. So that sort of no-strings-attached expression of unconditional love is so rare and when it happens, especially with the people who are closest to you, uh, it breathes life and uh, brings about resurrection, which it did. Um, I would also put my kids in that category, my three kids. They're all older, 23, 21, and 17, but none of them blinked 
during this entire thing. Uh, their love for me has been such an amazing expression of one-way love. And so between my wife, Stacy, and my friend, Paul Dahl, and my three kids, Gabe, Nate, and Jenna, um, I'm, I'm physically alive today because there were numerous times over the course of the last three and a half years where I wanted to take my own life. And I really give ultimate credit to God, but I give uh, proximate credit to them being used by God um, to save my life in some very tangible ways. So uh, I would say that to the person who is uh, bottoming out or feels 20, like they have... In 20 seconds. <laughs> yeah, uh, a... Uh, death always precedes resurrection, and God is not finished with the person who is bottomed out at Amen. all. In fact, on the other side of your bottoming out, God can and will use you in ways that you could never have imagined before. Amen. Amen. Tully, and I really do appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be with us. Thanks, brother. Thank you for having me. Well, you've been listening to the Outlaw Radio Show. If you like what you heard, I want to encourage you to do three things. First, visit Tolian's website. It's Tolian.net. Two, contact your local station and tell them you're thankful they're carrying Outlaw Radio and your community. And the third thing is visit our website. Our website is outlawradio.org. From the site, you can easily access our podcast. It's available on iTunes and Google Play. You can listen again to this episode, share it with a friend. You can listen to all previous episodes. Let me also encourage you to connect with me on Twitter at radio underscore outlaw. You can send me an email at info at outlawradio.org or you can always follow us via facebook.com slash the radio outlaw. Once again, my name is Zach Adams and I hope you join me again this time next week for the Outlaw Radio Show. You've been listening to the one and only Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. As mentioned, if you like what you heard, be sure to connect with us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter or check out our website by visiting outlawradio.org. To listen again to today's show, access our daily two-minute broadcast or full-length episodes, check out the Outlaw Radio podcast, available on both iTunes and Google Play. Once again, don't forget, we want to hear from you. If you have questions, want to challenge something that was said, or would like to submit topics you'd like to hear Zach discuss on air, you can either email us at info at outlawradio.org, or you can leave a voicemail at 678-883-3316. Finally, programs like Outlaw Radio are wonderful tools God can use to change lives. But as with any ministry, there are expenses involved. First, if you're not tithing to your local church, you need to do so. And yet, if God has laid it upon your heart to extend your generosity above and beyond your tithe, we'd ask that you prayerfully consider supporting Outlaw Radio. Every donation ensures this show remains on your local station. To learn how you can become a financial partner, please visit outlawradio.org. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you join us again next week for the Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams.
Outlaw Radio is a ministry of Calvary 316 in partnership with his productions. 